0: Hello, hello to my lovely OCD family community. It's November and I'm so excited because all month long I will be featuring my OCD related disorder series right here on the OCD family podcast. And I keep having to pinch myself, y'all, because I have been so fortunate to have amazing, amazing guests all season long. And this series is certainly no exception. So get comfy because today, We are talking about BFRBs. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent, and let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. First, I wanted to say a quick shout out to the IOCDF virtual conference, which is kicking off today. And if you were thinking about signing up, but either forgot or wonder if it's too late, I'm guessing that you can still sign up. It's a great resource for all things OCD as well as OCD-related disorders. But, but I have to say, when it comes to OCD-related disorders, there's still such an incredible need for more learning learning educating, and advocating for targeted research and support for OCD-related peeps. So part of how we do that, and again I say we because this is you, me, all of us family, is by increasing our awareness and understanding regarding some of these OCD-related disorders. In fact, increasing our awareness is going to be a theme today as we dive into BFRBs. So BFRBs, what are BFRBs? Well, BFRBs stand for body focused repetitive behaviors, and body focused repetitive behaviors can really present in a range of different ways, anywhere from hair pulling and skin picking to nail tearing, lip licking, cheek chewing, and more. But, family, let's dust off the old family tree here and look a little more at BFRBs, shall we? At present, BFRBs are somewhat of a distant cousin to OCD. And if you were to look in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the 5th edition, otherwise known as DSM-5, you will find an entire paragraph on BFRBs, you guys. A whole paragraph, which is ridiculous. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And while there are some references to skin picking and hair pulling as well as quote-unquote other body-focused repetitive behaviors due to direct pathophysiological consequences of another medical condition. And for you, OCD fam, I can translate that to triggered by another medical condition. We can look up individual diagnoses of trichotillomania or excoriation, respectively known as hair pulling or skin picking disorders, but there's a lot more to body-focused repetitive behaviors than that. And okay, okay, Rome wasn't built in a day, y'all. But apparently, it wasn't built in 70 years either, because the DSM-5's one paragraph, one, is progress from where things started 70 years ago. So it's my absolute pleasure to welcome today's guest, Dr. Suzanne Mouton-Odom, with us to talk about BFRBs. We are here to talk with Suzanne, and we are just thrilled, just thrilled, Suzanne, to have you here. Suzanne is very, very accomplished in training people. She's created databases for interventions for BFRBs, StopPullingAndStopPicking.com. And there's so much that she has contributed to our field at large, but as well for BFRBs. She's the president of SciTech, and she's also in private practice. She's on the scientific advisory board for the TLC Foundation for BFRBs, and she's a member of the Texas Psychological Association. She's had a history of being a staff psychologist at Kelsey Sable Clinic in Texas, presents at conferences, and she has written A Parent's Guide to Hair Pulling Disorder. It's just an absolute honor to have you here today, Suzanne thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having
1: me today. It's, I'm delighted.
0: Absolutely. And you have a beautiful, I'm looking, she's got a beautiful view out her window. It looks like a beautiful day there in Houston. So I, I am excited to get started. So when we talk about body-focused repetitive behaviors, what does that mean? And we're, we're going to try and lay a foundation here for our OCD family to really understand What is inclusive under
1: that umbrella of body-focused repetitive behaviors? Sure. So body-focused repetitive behaviors, or BFRBs, which we'll call them for ease of of speaking today, are behaviors that, such as hair pulling, and that could be from the scalp hair, eyelashes, eyebrows, Mm -hmm. arm hair, leg hair, facial hair, pubic hair, essentially any hair on the body. Mm -hmm. Skin picking, which could be cuticle picking, acne excoriation, feet picking, nail biting, lip chewing, lip biting, lip picking, cheek chewing, tongue chewing, and and a host of other behaviors that a person engages in that cause some harm to their body Mm -hmm. and they feel like they cannot stop. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's related to OCD as more of a distant cousin, Mm -hmm. not a brother or a sister. And and they're kind of alike in some ways and kind of different in some ways. And I can talk a little bit about that if you want. And They're now listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual as a, an OCD and related disorders.
0: Yeah. And I think it would be helpful to kind of talk about it because some of the similarities as you know there may be urges that compel you to act on a behavior but really when within OCD something that we've emphasized a lot is it's ego dystonic it's very distressing to have the urge to engage in these compulsory behaviors or thoughts. And within the OCD-related, we can kind of see that cousin relationship where we go, oh, yeah, there's definitely urges, there's definitely compulsions. But can we talk a little bit
1: about how that is different? Because I think that would be helpful for the family here to understand. Absolutely. And, And you pointed out a really big difference. And again, I want to start by saying not everybody with a BFRB is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And that's why treatment is so fun and exciting and creative because for every person that comes in the office, we have to figure out sort of how this behavior functions for them in their life. Mm -hmm. So when I say something, as soon as I say it, there's going to be somebody in the audience who says, but that's not me or that's not like me. So I I wanted to kind of say that caveat because there's a lot of heterogeneity among people or between people with these disorders. Mm -hmm. So, but in general, people that pull and pick skin and hair or hair and skin, generally enjoy it on some level. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and and when I say enjoy, that's kind of a generous word. For some people, it is pleasurable. It is soothing. It is gratifying. It is calming. It is like a best friend, someone said to me once. It's like, you know, their, their comfort. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some people, it's food. For some people, it's alcohol. For some people, it's hair pulling and skin picking.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we think there's a big nervous system part to that like a sensory nervous system piece for some people it's it is positive and more of a gratification like i picked that pimple and lots of stuff came out so that can be a positive experience mm-hmm. for some people it's you know making something smooth and it's re- like removing a scab or removing hairs that feel different or bumpy or coarse and so again that gratification is more, ah, oh, okay, I got rid of that, that thing, right? It feels different. It looks different. And there's that sense of positive reinforcement or gratification at the end of it. Now, as soon as I say that, there's a lot of negative that goes with pulling and picking as well, which usually comes a little bit later. Mm-hmm. And, and for some people, it is immediately after the behavior happens. Mm-hmm. It's shame. It is frustration. It is guilt. It is sadness. It is, oh my gosh, what am I doing to myself? Why am I doing this? And it's confusing, especially for children. Here I'm doing this thing that feels good to my body, but then people are looking at me funny. My mom's crying. My mom and dad are arguing about it. I'm in trouble and I don't understand why because this thing feels really good to me. Mm-hmm. So that's the main reason why they're different. Like you said, ego dystonic for OCD, for BFRBs it would be more syntonic in that it's seeking out something positive. or People like it. Most kids will tell me, I want to stop pulling or picking because it will make my parents happy, hmm. but I still want to do it. Mm-hmm. I still like this behavior. Now that usually starts to change middle school, early high school. Mm-hmm. Kids kind of cross over into, you "No, know, this is what I actually want to do. But oftentimes in childhood, kids are, are doing it and, and that's okay. We just figure out a way to work around that in mm-hmm. treatment. And so that's certainly workable. Other differences is the treatment is oftentimes quite different. Treatment for OCD, as many of you know, is ERP, Exposure Response Prevention. And we do utilize that in BFRB treatment, but it is not sort of the first-line treatment. It's more of an adjunct or something we do along the way. Mm -hmm. Because at some point, people are going to have to experience having an urge and not engaging in the behavior.
0: Right. So it sounds like ERP has more of a function of improving or or growing distress tolerance. So, So you're putting yourself in a situation where you may want to soothe by picking or pulling. And so you're utilizing different strategies probably within ERP, but it is a supplement to the learning and the treatment model for BFRB. Is that right?
1: That's that's correct. And it's incredibly powerful for many people to add that in. And I add it in almost always, but there is a fair number of people that can't tolerate it at the onset of treatment. It needs to be more of an advanced kind of a skill.
0: Right. So further into treatment, you might go into ERP, whereas with OCD, you would go in right after your psychoeducation, right after learning more about your OCD and doing your Y-Box or CY box, you would go into ERP
1: right away, head on. Uh, well, yeah. Building a hierarchy and kind of approaching.
0: Yeah. 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 All of that. Can you tell me, you know, w- would you differentiate BFRBs from stimming? Because I think, you know, when I think of stimming, and sometimes those are non preferred behaviors for parents, you know, someone might stim by headbanging, they might stim by by flapping, they might stim. with picking kind of fall within that category? Because I think generally the function of the stim is to be regulatory for the person doing it.
1: Yeah. That's a great question. And and the answer is we don't know exactly. So I there's so much we don't know about BFRBs. And and I'll just be honest with you there. However, what you just said makes a lot of sense is that the function of the behavior for some people mm-hmm. may be the same. And that it's calming, soothing, and helping them to integrate maybe an overwhelming amount of stimuli, or it's been a long day. I'm overwhelmed, and this is just sort of helping my body get to a different level of activation. Mm -hmm. And what I don't want people to hear is that if your child is engaging in a BFRB, that they are necessarily on the spectrum as, you know, this is a self-stimming behavior. And I'm not saying they couldn't be on the spectrum, but it certainly does not mean that they're on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And I, the function may be the same, but the disorder's the disorders that they are contained within are very different.
0: Yes, absolutely. And as I always say at the top of the show, and I reiterate every so often because it's very important to reiterate, this is not a diagnostic talk. We're not listening and going, oh, yeah, okay." so now we're going to diagnose you. This is not therapy. This is not treatment. This is an educational opportunity to learn more. And so being curious and kind of letting ourselves bubble up with these questions going, huh, It does kind of sound like stimming or it does sound like that. I mean, we always encourage that conversation. But if you have questions about BFRBs or ASD too, we would also encourage you to seek out a mental health professional that could be helpful or a medical professional that could be helpful with a diagnosis. And so, yeah, I think that's a really, really good point to differentiate. Within BFRBs, you have commented on... How you may have these urges. Sometimes these urges are very conscious, like this is going to be soothing. A lot of times people can start surfing, whether it's their hair or their skin, and it's not really something that they're thinking about. They kind of go in on autopilot. And sometimes it's
1: very intentional. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. And what you're describing is a differentiation that exists in the literature that is referred to as focused pulling or picking versus automatic pulling or picking. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, as a clinician, I think you can be both. Like in some environments, in front of the mirror, at night, someone may be very intentional and focused on the behavior. Whereas in a different situation, maybe driving their car, stuck in traffic or bored, it may just be happening in the background and they're not so much aware of it. But there's also kind of this in-between. So you can have both separately, even in the same day, but also Someone may start really unintentional. They're not thinking about it. Maybe their mind is somewhere else. They're just stroking their hair or their skin. And then they come across something that feels interesting, curious, intriguing. And at that point, it becomes more focused. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes more goal-driven, goal-directed. And so I think I think it one can turn into the other, or maybe it starts really intentional and then. A person gets distracted and it goes into the background and they don't realize that they're doing it anymore. So I think that could work both ways as well. And and the reason why there is some importance to this distinction, a couple of reasons. One is we treat it differently. Mm -hmm. And so if someone's primarily pulling without awareness, our goal becomes to increase awareness. Mm -hmm. And there are several different ways to do that. But that's an important first step. Mm -hmm. It's hard to change behavior when you're not really aware you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And I always say in therapy, if I'm halfway through the chocolate cake before I remember that I'm trying to lose weight or trying to get healthy or trying to not eat sugar, am I going to be successful? Yeah, you know. And the next question is, when do I want to become aware?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And most people will say, right before you eat it. And then my answer is, well, it smells really good. It's hot out of the oven. It's kind of too late. So Awareness kind of has to begin 10 steps before, like before you go to the grocery store and buy the ingredients. It really requires thinking ahead and preparing for those situations so that that automatic thing doesn't get triggered. So part of it is really getting to know a person mm-hmm. and their unique habits and their unique pulling and picking environments. And so it's complicated.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it it can range even within the person. So you were talking about like person to person, this varies. But also, it can range within you as an individual, because certain days are going to be, we know it'll be stressful, or we know it'll be busy. Other days, we can get caught off guard and surprised. We could go months without engaging in something. We could find ourselves just in a storm of picking and pulling at other times. And so even looking at the variability there. And, you know, you talked about the sensory piece, which you also do a lot of great work on sensory dysregulation. And what we what we know about sensory is it accumulates like it snowballs throughout any given day. And so all of those different pieces can contribute to different triggers, different mindfulness, different awareness, but learning about, in general, learning about kind of your way of processing through different things can be very, very helpful. So in terms of, for parents that might be going, okay, well, I know that when I was a kid, I would bite my nails or I'd chew on a pen cap. And so, you know, what part of, some of that's just normal, isn't it? Like, where should we go? Oh, is this going to be a thing that becomes a bigger thing? What part of this is, quote unquote, normal? We always have this quest for normalcy. And so can you speak to that a little bit?
1: Sure. And I think it really varies family to family, person to person. Mm -hmm. And I see some families and their child has half the hair of their head missing. The family doesn't miss a beat and they're still, you know, focusing on life and not so worried about it versus families that shut everything down and become very focused on that one dimension. And so, and there's everything in between. So yes, all children self-regulate, some suck their thumbs, some chew, you know, both of my kids were like shirt chewers, the color of their shirt. You know, who knows, maybe it's not a body focused behavior. It's definitely a repetitive behavior that, you know, could be concerning somewhat. But the point is kids do stuff and adults do stuff to self-regulate. We're all trying to stay in homeostasis, right? Right. So after a long day, some people might go on a run, some people might meditate, some people might take a hot bath, some people might drink a glass of wine. You know, there's a variety of different behavioral choices for someone who's feeling overwhelmed, overstimulated, and kind of keyed up. And, and, so, and kids are no different, right? And so what we do is we look at, like, when is the behavior happening? And what are the internal and external triggers for that behavior. Mm -hmm. And in the five areas that we look at to make this assessment is the the model is called the SCAMP acronym, Mm -hmm. Sensory Cognitive Affective Motor and Place. And I can talk a little bit about each of those if you'd like, but we talked about the sensory, which is, you know, the five senses as well as the three internal senses. Cognitive is beliefs like some people believe I had a child the other day say if I tug on the hair and it hurts that means there's something wrong with the hair that it needs to go. Mm. That sweet thing didn't realize that every single hair on her head probably was going to hurt if you tugged on it. Right, and so we had to have a conversation about challenging those thoughts. And it's supposed to hurt. It hurts for a reason. Mm-hmm. Is that hair supposed to stay in there. So changing beliefs about skin or hair
0: mm-hmm.
1: affected is emotional. So if someone You know, the assumption is that people pull and pick because they are tense or stressed out. And that's true for most people, at least sometimes. Mm -hmm. Most people will say, yes, some of the time I do pull or pick when I am stressed. But as soon as they say that, they'll say, but I do it at other times, too. Mm -hmm. You know, when I'm bored or tired or falling asleep or when I'm excited or you know picking mm-hmm. a task so the motor is what we talked about a minute ago awareness uh-huh. and there are a lot of sort of automatic motor behaviors that we don't even realize we're doing and so we try to understand mm-hmm. premonitory motor behaviors mm-hmm. and also what do you do with the hair and skin afterwards mm-hmm. and then the last of the p is the place and where are you what are you doing who's around what time of day is it sort of all of the external environmental factors that are important yeah. you know and and so we look at all of those things to determine what are relevant to that unique individual and then we start to look at okay what was also happening right before mm-hmm. and right after so what are things that make hair pulling and skin picking more likely to happen and those could be any of those five things right and what happens after that's reinforcing or causing the behavior to happen again or to continue and, and what happens after that makes the behavior stop? Because that's just as important. And then we put all that together and come up with a plan. And, and with kids, a lot of times, in addition to the plan, we add a reward plan. Because oftentimes kids aren't that motivated to change their behavior for the sake of having hair or healed skin. They just want to make mom and dad happy and they want people to be proud of them. Yeah. So adding in rewards like stickers for using your strategies really helps not when we never, 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 never reward hair growth or skin healing. We want to reward use of strategies because it keeps the child engaged. We just want engagement with the treatment plan. Hair's going to grow, skin's going to grow back as long as we're focused on using the strategies, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a a really good point because the kids are trying to make parents happy. Parents' goal is I want the, the hair back. I want the skin back. And then, again, we're putting implicit pressure on something that isn't the main goal because what we need to remember when it comes to BFRBs is often the behavior and the engagement in the BFRB itself is rewarding. So unlike with OCD, that's not rewarding, that's very distressing, there already is some kind of reward. So going, okay, I can work toward other rewards And it's not just a failure if I'm not having hair grow back or I pick and pull again. You know, we still want to celebrate the awareness and the growth and the progress and the use of strategies and learning. And that ultimately will lead to less picking for a lot of people. And, you know, or, or, you know, maybe they'll have a spot or they'll have areas they kind of stick to, but that's different than five spots. And they can go, wow. I feel proud of myself that I got it to this one spot. I
1: was just going to say that it changes also the focus to actionable items that can be observed. Like, are you wearing a hat, you know, in this environment, like while watching television, for example? That's a simple awareness-enhancing technique that also is a barrier and keeps a person from being able to pull their hair. That's an easy thing to do. It's observable. It keeps the focus off of hair it's whether or not you're going to wear your hat. And then a parent can, can reinforce that. And what unfortunately happens in so many families and, and well-intentioned, and let me just say, I've never met a family of, of a child with a BFRB that was not well-intentioned. I mean, these are lovely human beings that desperately want to help their child, but they get people can get so focused on hair and skin that the child begins to believe that they are only lovable and will only like have a good life if they have a full head of hair and healed skin, which is not the case at all. I know many people without any hair that are lovely, happy, fulfilled individuals, many of them men. And but the point is that and I know many, many people with full heads of hair that are not happy oh, yeah. and fulfilled in their life. And so we can we have to give up this idea that my child will have a ruined life if we don't deal with this. And and more than anything. It instills inadvertently, it can instill a sense of shame in the child mm-hmm. because they they want to go into hiding with their behavior. They do it secretly, they do it when mom and dad can't see because they still want to do it. They still want to get whatever that feel good is, but now they don't want to get caught. Mm-hmm. And and it becomes this kind of yucky cycle and battle of wills. We just don't want to get into that. We just want to encourage positive behaviors that ultimately will lead to what the ultimate goal is. But we don't talk about that.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and some safety and some parameters. You know, it's, it might be a weird analogy, but I was just thinking about like, you know, with parents in terms of how they talk about sex with their kids, right? You know, it's like, do we want them to have information and be safe? Or do we want to be shaming and be like, no way? And have people get into situations where they have a risk of getting A disease or risk of, of, you know, all sorts of different things. And so not talking about it doesn't make it go away. And shaming it and saying, Don't do it, which gives you no actionable piece that you would prefer to see, but just stop. Just knock it off. Don't do it. Doesn't help either. And people are more likely to go in private, have this thing that brings them some kind of comfort and then feel like I'm am I a freak because everybody thinks this is so weird. And then have that immediate shame about that stigma kind of pop in. And so I think those are really good points. But yeah, it can be really, really hard. I think a lot of times parents look at their kids and they just they want what's best for them and they think, well, are they going to get teased if they have a spot? Are they going to be teased if they, you know, have to wear a sweatshirt or long sleeve shirts because they've picked up their arms so much or their shoulders or whatever, you know, and and so I think the intention there is to be protective, but also to help mitigate their distress. They're feeling distress about the fact that their child's doing this and they have no control over it. Right. Well, and
1: the truth is, and, and you hit on a really good point, and parents bring this up all the time, is a fear of their child getting teased.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: my response to that is every child is going to get teased for something. Mm-hmm. I tell, you know, I was Susie Sasquatch. You can't see it, but I have big feet. And I had him in sixth grade. And, you know, everybody's going to get teased for something. So what we want to do is teach our kids how to advocate for themselves. When someone teases you, what are you going to say? How are you going to handle it? And, and how to, you know, stick up for themselves if they can or garner support from friends or go tell a teacher if they're, if they're truly being bullied because those other children need to be reminded that that's not okay. And so because teasing is unfortunately something that happens whether we try to prevent it or not. And so focusing on that to prevent teasing to me is wasted effort because most kids are going to get teased anyway. And so if if a child is not going to wear, you know, chooses not to wear a wig and has a lot of missing hair or lots of scabs, we got to figure out how to respond to that because kids might say something. And if they do, and we role play in the office, how could you respond to that? How did you respond to that? Or what will you say if somebody says this? And and that actually empowers the child to deal with the situation, not to see that as like the worst thing that could ever happen. And how can we avoid it?
0: Yeah, I think that's, a, that's an excellent point. And I, it's so important. And it's another distinction, I would say, between OCD and BFRBs at the surface, because we want to teach essentially safety behaviors of how we can get through this situation safely, whether you're picking or not, whether you're pulling or not. Within OCD, those safety behaviors become compulsions, and that's the thing that we want to reduce. And so it can be tricky because certainly BFRBs can overlap with OCD. And so if you are a parent working with a child where you're like, we're not going to do the safety behavior (laughs) here (laughs) with the OCD-related thought, but here with the BFRB we're going to learn how to safely manage that when we do engage when we do go there and you know some of those awareness pieces where we can go oh if i'm if i do it you know without even thinking about it when i'm watching binge watching on netflix then yeah maybe i can wear a hat and that would you know deter me from going to town you know if i if that's not what i want to be getting into if, I, if I'm working on a different goal here. But yeah, that can be tricky, especially when both are present, OCD and BFRBs. And for the parent, they're like, reduced safe behavior. But wait,
1: what? <laughs> you know, it can get confusing. So can you speak to that piece a little bit? I think that the main accommodation that we see with BFRBs is changing parenting. And so parents will not allow the child to experience normal frustration because they are worried that they'll go engage with in their BFRB. And what that looks like is, you know, the child needs a timeout and the parent doesn't send them to their room for a timeout. Well, what if they pull? Well, what if they pull? They might, and that needs to be on them and make sure their strategy's in the room, but you can't ultimately control that. right? And so I'll see parents Not following through with consequences with their children, and that means their children are missing valuable parenting lessons, life lessons, information, and consequences to their actions. Mm -hmm. And because, and then, then the hair pulling becomes a manipulation for some kids. Oh, and they'll say, "I'm going to go pull my hair if you do that," Mm -hmm. or and a parent should say, "Great, that's on you. Yeah, that's your choice." And to have the child own that because what we really don't want to see is hair pulling and skin picking to become the source of family conflict or giving the child power over the family and their decisions you know we can't we can't do this because Susie might pull her pick now let's help Susie in that situation to be empowered and to have everything that she needs hopefully to manage it but also not see as like a reason to not go
0: right you know to yeah, whatever it is, yes. yeah, and that's a that's a great point as well. You know, a lot of times these kiddos, as you uh, as you mentioned, may be you know wanting to please the parents, and that's why they're engaging in treatment or trying to stop the behavior. And so, uh, you know, if they've earned a, a natural consequence, that's going to probably be hard for you and them because they're trying to do their best. But we're all human, and we're going to make mistakes. And so having that opportunity to learn the cause and effect of some of the choices they make, even if they choose to go in, that's ultimately their responsibility if they choose to go in and pick or pull. And I think that can be so hard because we're we're helping train and provide scaffolding for kids growing up. You know, there's such a sense of responsibility from the parents. But, you know... You guys parents, I'm a parent, Suzanne, you're a parent. We've got enough responsibility on our own shoulders and well and I think also responsibility in parenting is providing the understanding of how the real world works and there are natural consequences to our choices. And so if they go in there and pick then that yeah absolutely that's on them. And again, it's not we're not just focused and correct me if I'm wrong here Suzanne, but we're not just focused on symptom reduction. Because are they going to just stop picking? What's what in your mind is is that end
1: goal? Are they going to stop picking? Because that's that's just not a realistic end goal. You're a hundred percent right, and and I really like to think about treatment. I use food analogies a lot mm-hmm. with parents, and so back to kind of you know safety behaviors or using their strategies or using the things that will reduce their ability or need to pull or pick. Different from OCD, we we want to. Offer, make things available, but the parents are not in control. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it's a backfire. So if I'm about to eat a donut in the morning and my husband comes in and says, oh, don't eat that donut, that will make you fat. Does that make me want to not eat the donut? Right. It makes me want to eat five donuts and throw one at (laughs) him. So telling someone to not do something in the moment that they want to do that behavior. So saying, stop pulling, don't pull your hair out is gonna make a child actually want it more and be upset and like be angry. That is a normal human reaction to being told not to do something in the moment that you are really having an urge to do it. Okay. So that's number one. Number two is if if I get up in the morning and my husband looks at my rear end to see if it's bigger today than it was yesterday, how do I feel? Right. I mean, yeah, I mean you're not gonna love that. But parents do it all the time. They take pictures of their child's head. Let me take let me take a picture of the back of your head and show you. I've had parents that have like baby cams in their child's room. And if the child starts pulling or picking, they'll say, stop it, put your hand down. You know, so it's like constant monitoring. It is shaming. And and again, all well-intentioned parents. I'm not down on parents at all, but they're other way. Right. And those behaviors actually don't lead to successful outcomes. And so we try to steer parents toward things that are positive, that are actionable, but to offer a strategy. Yeah, I don't know. If he offered me the apple instead of the donut and said, why don't you have one of these? Might be better, still might make me angry, and I still might want the donut, right? So, but at least there's another option. But if all I had in the house were fruits and good choices, it would make it a whole lot easier to not choose the donut. So it's really about providing an array of positive, you know, proactive things and ideas and strategies and interventions that are helpful and supporting the child with that. And then ultimately it's their choice whether they engage or not. So we can add in a reward chart to help them engage. But even then, sometimes people aren't ready. Right. The biggest mistakes therapists make, and I think there's all different kinds of arguments about what treatment is the best. Most of the treatments miss the key ingredient, which is preparation and preparing the person for what treatment's going to be like. Well, it's like starting with OCD. If the first session you were like, you learn with it and you just start, boom, doing, you know, exposures without understanding why we're doing this. You need to explain the rationale. You need to get buy-in. you need to understand this is going to be hard. And that's, with OCD, that's the goal, is to make people uncomfortable. And with BFRBs, it's really helping them to engage. It's undoing shame. It's feeling, you know, normal. These are normal human behaviors that have kind of gotten engaged in too much to the point where it's, it's like a primary coping strategy. And so I think the biggest mistake people make is they focus too much on, let's stop this change this behavior right now, the person, whether it's an adult, an adolescent, or a child, is frustrated. They don't, they're they not ready to change. Therapist gets frustrated. Parents are frustrated. Everybody's upset. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, it's just a person that's not ready. Right. They're not ready. And that's okay. Right.
0: Okay. And I think that also goes to, you know, what ultimately is your goal? Because we talked about, we referenced earlier, some of the, the goal for the parents was like, I don't want you to pick over. Well, it's not realistic, sister. So, you know, go ahead and start preparing for your, your distress now because that's just not going to happen. Right. And there is something to, to be said about, you know, as adults, we get to choose whether we want to go get a bottle of wine, whether we want to, you know, cancel a plan, whether we want to chew an ice or eat, eat some Haagen-Dazs or whatever it is, we get some choice in that. And for some reason, the kids are supposed to just not have something. <laughs> you know, this might be their thing and it's something they have access to. And it's something that does bring a sense of gain, even if it also brings some distress and things can be both, right? Like, if I were to eat, you know, if I were to go grab some Ben and Jerry's and eat some, I might be like, that's delicious and I love it and I enjoy it. If I eat the whole pint,
1: then I'm going to be like, well, now I feel like shit because I did that. And if you do it every day, three times a day, Right. there would be a problem after a few months. And then you've kind of gotten yourself into a situation. It's become a habit. Your body now craves it because all of the bacteria in your microbiome want that Haagen-Dazs three times a day. And now you're having physical urges for it. And so you have literally created this thing that's going to be doable to undo, but difficult. Right. And so, and and you're right. I I truly believe most things that feel really, really good in life, if done to excess, are probably not good for us. Right. And so as adults, and I spend so much time with adults talking about that. Like, have you put, and I will ask you this, have you ever put anything in your mouth that you probably shouldn't have? Absolutely. I've only had one parent say no. And I was just fine. I was like, I couldn't even respond. I was like, okay. you like, we have most, other issues. No. <laughs> most people can't say that. Most people have definitely put a few things in their mouth they probably shouldn't have. And then I asked, did you do it knowingly? Did you do it knowingly? Well, of course you did. It, but then why? Because parents will say this. Why is she doing this? She knows not to do it. She knows that she's not supposed to do it. She's told me she doesn't want to do it. Why is she doing it? And I say, Oh my gosh, I want to lose that last five pounds that I still need to lose, but I still stuck the thing in my mouth last night. I shouldn't have, right? Because in that moment, that's the thing you want in that moment. And so, how do we prevent people from getting to that moment? Like, how do we change the order of operations or how do we change the environment to change that moment? So, again, it's taking 10 steps back and changing how we approach things. Or if the child is in that moment and they're having the urge and they're choosing to do it, how can we support them? You know, and I always say, ask your child. Huge. What do you need from me in this moment? And maybe not, that's not the moment to ask And Maybe you plan it ahead of time. Like, what do you need? If your parents see you engaging in your BFRB, what do you want them to do? And most kids will say, I want them to do nothing. I want them to say nothing. And I ask parents to respect that. If, especially if they have everything that they need. They're, you know, strategy-wise, that's being their choice. Some kids will say, give me a hug. Just come give me a hug or distract me. Come, hey, come to the kitchen. You know, help me cook dinner or let's go on a walk. So, but it, it really needs to come from the child because they need to feel supported. They need to feel loved and appreciated and they don't need to feel like they're doing something wrong and humiliated, which is anytime anyone gets caught doing something they're not supposed to do, it doesn't feel good. You're like, oh, uh, sorry, I wasn't really doing that, you know. And, and also, it is another thing that comes up a lot is my child is lying to me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm like, whoa, whoa, hold on.
0: Strong because words.
1: Those are strong words. And most people fudge. How many glasses of wine did you have last night? One? <laughs> you know, and, and most people under report, they say, oh, yeah, I eat healthy all week, minus the haagen and minus the whatever. Because they don't want to admit it, right? right? And so we have we we really have to put ourselves in their shoes, and realize these are hard things to admit. So rather than making them admit it, let's figure out how we can support them. Mm-hmm. How can we be a better support system? I always say, parents, you're cheerleaders, and your pillows, mm-hmm. right? So you are the cheerleader saying woohoo, you're doing great, and you're the pillow that they fall on. You're the support. You're the softness. You're the care. You're the gentleness. You are that soft pillow. And they can hold them up in the moments when they're really struggling. And that's really our job.
0: That's, I I think, a beautiful way of conceptualizing it. And I I love that. What about the situation, which we come into as parents often, and maybe you're co-parenting or maybe you're, I mean, a lot of people, whether you're separated or not. Whether you guys are living together or not, you guys may not agree eye to eye on strategies for dealing with discipline, dealing with childhood problems. And I hesitate to say discipline with, in association with this because I feel like it's it's not that we want to discipline the behavior, but in terms of setting some parenting parameters. And so maybe you are all in on being the soft pillow, but your partner. Or your co-parent is like a hard <laughs> floor, is asphalt, <laughs> not a soft pillow, not a soft pillow, but rather asphalt. So, what do we do in those situations?
1: I hear well, those kind of questions a lot. Well, and I think that's true for any any parenting issue across the board, right? You know, this always ends up with. Oftentimes, as we know, one parent just gets lighter and lighter and lighter and one gets heavier and heavier and heavier instead of moving toward the middle, which is where we need to go. Well, that sounds familiar in our world today. You know, it's, it's like the more one, one parent goes one way, the more the other parent goes the other to try and offset it. It just becomes this big imbalance. And so this is what we do in therapy all the time, which is help parents see the greater goal and, and come together on that. We want the same thing. And how can we get together on how we're going to get there and what we can do? This is why therapy is super helpful, like talking to a professional that can explain why this is the course of action. One parent can be more in charge of dealing with that issue. That's just, oh, I'm the parent that helps with that. I really recommend parents staying out of the BFRB help if the child's in therapy. I always say, let me be the police and y'all be parents. You just be good. And I'll be the police and I will be the one asking questions. And I may ask you guys to do some things like keep your mouth shut and buy some things that we need and maybe give some reminders and maybe set some things up in the house. But as far as going around and directing behavior, it's a terrible idea, a terrible idea. And it, it creates that I don't want to do that because you're telling me to do it. And oftentimes, when you get parents to be quiet, it changes the whole dynamic. The child runs in and says, I made an A on my math test. And they're missing both eyebrows. You miss the opportunity to have that joy and that celebration when you just go, my God, what happened to your eyebrows? Which is what happens. You've completely missed the opportunity to celebrate the A on the math test. I see it happening all the time. And the child's devastated. And the parent just goes right to, oh, my God, look what happened. You know, And, and so I teach parents, you have to focus. Uh, you, you gotta look past that. Later, you can circle back if you need to. Well, tell me about the eyebrows. What's going on there? What did that happen during the math? Was it another thing? Can we talk about it? You know, and to try and understand that a little bit better. And okay, so and then we're problem solving. So what did you use? What did you not use? What what broke down? Oh, you forgot your strategies. Okay, so how can we figure that out? You know, that is a better conversation than now I'm emotionally dysregulated. I look mad. So kids see fear is anger. Right. They look at us and may see we're angry at them and we're really scared. Right. You know, and this is what happens. And so a lot of the work I do and the book you mentioned earlier, Parent Guide to Hair Pulling Disorder. The reason we wrote that book is because we felt like we were saying the same things over and over and over. It's like we got to get this out so that the parents understand their job is not to prevent their child from pulling or picking. It's to help support them. And with the help of a therapist, hopefully, or, you know, a self-guided sort of thing with the help of a book. And there's another great book, The Hair pulling habit in you by my co-author Ruth Gollum and Sherry Vavichek that's for kids and teens. That's sort of a, a workbook that's super helpful as well built, that's based on the same intervention model. And then it again, it keeps parents very focused on engagement rather than being the police.
0: I love that. I love that because I think it's it's really helpful. And and you know, as with anything When we have situations, say your your partner or the kid's other parent that maybe splits some of the managing duties, just literally, no matter what you say, they'll do the opposite. And you feel like, I can't get anywhere with them. Well, then don't go anywhere with them. Remember your kid. Remember your kid. See your kid. And you can provide in your home. You can provide in your space that soft pillow. And you can talk and you can plan ahead. And so there's a lot of planning ahead for the person suffering in their own ways from the BFRB. But also for you as the parent planning ahead, how am I gonna respond when I come in and I see them picking? How am I gonna do that? I already talked with them. We've had an inventory of this. And so they told me if they need something from me, they'll let me know, so then go about it. And if you were gonna go get them and say, hey, it's time to do the dishes, were you gonna say, hey, you know, we're leaving for the game at six, then say that. Live your life. Let yourself live your life. Let yourself feel permission to not have to have this huge responsibility over whether they pick or pull. They're gonna pick or pull. And so having that and each person is gonna be different. And again, depending on what's happening on the day or what's happening hormonally for them or whatnot, they might just be like, I don't I don't want any of that today. Okay. We we all get to those places. We don't feel the same way every day. But having that plan is huge. I also find addressing these things at times where we know we're going to talk about something, whether we have a family meeting where we do housekeeping business, what's our schedule for the week? What's our plan? What went well? What can we work on for next week? That can be helpful, especially if you don't want to be reactive in the moment, because often the reactive in the moment, like you said, and a lot of it's coming from fear and anxiety within the parents, feels like I'm mad at you because you did this thing again. And so being able to plan ahead and going, okay, you know, Tuesdays at eight after soccer, when we're like going to a fast food because we got to get home and homework and go to bed, we can also have these family meetings where we can go, what went well this week, what went. And that can be about a number of things, including. The BFRB, including you know what was tricky, if if the need has shifted for support, and that can make it feel a lot less threatening. It's just
1: more of a how are we planning for the week? That's and it's problem solving. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody has the right answer straight out of the gate, and there's going to be trial and error. There's going to be, you know, see what works, and then we reassess. We throw some things out, we keep some things because. Every child is different. Every family is different. One thing that I think is super helpful is the metaphor of watering the flowers, not the weeds. And so many times in families, because what we focus on and what we water grows. And I really encourage people to take a good look at what they're putting their energy on, and if they're putting all their energy on the BFRB or the bad grades or the whatever, and it's it's not what you want to grow. You're growing the wrong thing. Yeah, we want to focus on. The qualities, the things about the child that are amazing or that are unique or different or funny or good qualities like Mm -hmm. kindness, like you were such a kind friend or you were so helpful or I loved the way you blah, blah, blah. If we only focus on the things that we see as an issue, that's Mm -hmm. all that's going to grow. And that's our part that we can give. So we want to focus on growing their ego. We want to grow their sense of self and their identity and their security and their strength. That's what we want to grow, not their BFRB.
0: Yeah. You know, it, I used to work a lot with the zero to five population, especially in, in kind of the greater Los Angeles area. And, you know, we'd have kids with and families that had great trauma and, and lots of different things, lots of different sensory things. And we were doing a lot of multidisciplinary practice. But I would always put a sign up in my office that would say, let's focus on the behaviors we want to see from our child. And the parents would be like, but I do want to see them hit less. Okay, yeah, you want to see them hit less. So what would you rather see them do? And they're like, well, I wish we could play with blocks. Well, then let's play with blocks. And then if they if they put one block on top of the other, let's celebrate that because that's what we wanted. That's what we wanted from them. And so I think sometimes people can get kind of stuck. They're like, I am focusing what I want. From them, I am trying to water the garden, and you're like, well, yeah, you're trying to water the garden, but really, we're focusing on the weeds here, and then yeah, the water is, is not going to the flowers,
1: and the flowers are wilting.
0: <laughs> exactly,
1: and so is the so is the self esteem, unfortunately. Right. I do want to talk a little bit about little bitties because you know the average age of onset for BFRBs is around 12 or 13, and prior to that age of 12 or 13, it's about 50 percent boys, 50 percent girls. After that age, it becomes more heavily weighted girls. We're not sure if that's a reporting issue or if hormones sort of trigger something in in puberty. So I'm not going to say that I have the answer there, but then there's this other little group we call baby trick. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the zero to four or five. And we see that more than you would believe, like six Mm month-olds, eight month olds, which really speaks to the hardwired nature of these behaviors. These are not. The result of bad parenting. This is not the result of abuse or trauma, or your child was sexually abused and you just didn't know about it. I mean, that is patently untrue. Well, I guess any child could have been abused. I'm not saying they weren't, but that's not why they're pulling or picking. It's not the um, cause. It's not the underlying reason. We cannot make any assumptions, and and there are professionals out there making assumptions that are patently wrong. And with a little bitty. It, it's incredibly treatable, but it's a little bit different and it 100% involves the parents. And so, so I'll even say, please do not bring your eight month old in here. I don't need to meet your eight month old. I do not do therapy with eight month olds, but I bring the parents in and we talk about how to change the environment, how to increase sensory soothing, how to change you know, the order of things, how to provide more or less stimulation in certain environments, but it's successful treatment with the littles because the parents are 100% in control. As a child ages, parents become less and less in control. By the time they're adolescents, all bets are off and your child really has to want to change their behavior because it's, it's really not something that the more the parents try to assert control, the less successful we're going to be. But with the little bitties, I think a lot of parents understandably get frightened when they see that behavior and especially if a child is eating their hair and I will say hair pulling and skin picking skin picking can be more dangerous because of infection and scarring and a variety of different medical things that can happen as a result but hair pulling is pretty benign unless you're eating your hair and hair ingestion especially long hairs can cause gastrointestinal blockage that needs like surgery to remove it's fairly uncommon but when we see a small child, pulling and eating hair. We always want to get that evaluated. And that's just my caveat to say that if a child is eating hair, please take them to a GI doctor and have that. Don't scare them, but take them to a GI doctor and know that, that that's something we really do need to focus on is they're not eating of hair. But that with the baby tricksters, it is incredibly treatable, but it doesn't involve treating the child. It involves treating, helping the parents to provide the appropriate environment for the child to be successful.
0: Yeah, you know, in my history of treating with zero to five, the family piece is imperative because absolutely, you're really, it's a parallel process of helping the parent learn the cues, learn how to communicate, how to understand the cues from the child, whether it's over stimulation and dysregulation, you know, a lot of different pieces like that. And so absolutely, people are always like, how do you do therapy with a to five-year-old. And I'm like, well, I work with a caregiver and we work on that. And it makes a huge, profound difference. And again, those caregivers are doing the best they can and they're coming into complicated situations. And we definitely do not get an instruction manual when we get babies. (laughs) But when a baby is born, a parent is born. You know, it, it really is a complete kind of metamorphosis from not knowing, not experiencing to going into that. And so it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to need help. And, you know, just saying that, you know, earlier we were talking about what about the situation if the other parent is like just belligerent and not helping and being that kind of hard place, not a soft pillow. You made a great point because you can go to the therapist and you can say, okay, this guy over here or this woman over here not being so helpful but i still don't have to be alone i can provide the soft pillow i can provide the support here at home and we there are other people other allies that we can bring into the equation we can team up with a therapist we can team up with the teachers and educate the teachers and the teachers don't have to police this either please you know and and really work on those different pieces together so You don't have to be alone. There's support groups for other parents going through this as well and being able to connect with other people going, oh, yeah. But sometimes, ironically, I think uh, we might have a history as parents. We might have a history of maybe picking like like the I chewed my nails when I was younger. What, what's the big deal, right? And sometimes we overcorrect in the kids. Like the expectation is I did this, but I know what kind of hardship that it could bring. So I'm not tolerating it at all. And I can't stand seeing it at all in my kid. And it's like, hey, for both of you then. This, this is a great opportunity to increase awareness, to plan around it, and to not beat ourselves up because we engaged in something that had a rewarding aspect to it. But if we want to work on that, and certainly that can be very helpful and very rewarding to work on that, then what are some tips and strategies that we can engage in? And so it's never too late. Even if you're a parent and you're recognizing, yeah, well, I was a, such a bad, like, cuticle picker or you know whatever it is nail ripper it's never too late there's hope for you too but sometimes the parents get really triggered seeing the kids do it and they're like no you're not gonna do this seeing I mm-hmm. I I started this when I was young and so I can't help it but you're not gonna do this. I'm gonna make sure that you don't do this. That's not gonna help. They probably just do it in secret and feel more shame about it and perpetuate the cycle.
1: Well and that that it speaks to parenting in general, you know, and and we parent oftentimes how We wish we had been parented Mm -hmm. or, and sometimes we overcompensate Mm -hmm. and we get triggered and, you know, life is complicated. Mm -hmm. It's not so easy, but I think the more we can try to relate to our kids and the more we can try to be empathic and compassionate and try to put ourselves in their shoes, whether it's for a BFRB or whatever it may be. And also remember, as you said, remember our own childhoods. And how it feels to be a kid. And you want your parents to be proud of you. And you you remember what it felt like when someone said something to you that was unintentionally hurtful. right? And kids are, you know, they're little sponges. They like to absorb everything and take it in. And and so we have to be careful. And and if we do mess up, and I've had parents in my office crying. I've done everything right. I said, yes, we all have. And you can say you're sorry and do and then do it differently. Mm-hmm. I've made mistakes. I thought this was the right way to handle it. Now I'm understanding this is not. We're gonna do it differently now. And and also bring the child in as sort of a consultant, you know, that yeah. they can really be the the boss of them. And they also have a lot of good insight into what is helpful. And so really asking them, what would help you? How can I help you?
0: Yeah, and I think that, you know, as many things we've talked about with this within the OCD family community is it can be, feel really freeing to go, hey, I can partner with them. Yeah, they may only be six. Yeah, they may only be 12. Yeah, yeah they may be 15 and I'm pretty sure they know everything anyway. But certainly we know ourselves in terms of what is pleasurable, what is not, what is gratifying, what is not, what is soothing, what is not. And it's going to vary broadly across people, and it might change over time as you go through different developmental stages. Okay. So you don't have to know it all. How freeing to be able to go, you know what, we can figure this out together. And what a great model too for the kid to go, I can step back and go, okay, well, that didn't work so well. Oops, sorry. Let's see what we can do with it. How can we learn from it? It doesn't have to be this shame thing. It can be a pivot of, oh, it's a maze and we went the wrong way. So let's try this way. Because we're
1: human. Yeah. The other thing I would add is, you know, because this is, these are behaviors shrouded in shame, meeting other people Mm -hmm. is so incredibly powerful. And I imagine it's similar with OCD. I think that it is. But OCD is now like popular media. People say, oh, I have OCD. Inappropriately so. when, When they clearly do not have OCD. Nobody says, oh, I have a BFRB. For fun, oh, it's my BFR. I'm so BFRB. Nobody says that, right? Nobody talks about it. Even you know famous actors and actresses that have come out and said, "Yes, I do these things," won't admit it, won't talk about it. There's still so much hesitancy in the world to talk about these things. So meeting other people, and I'm I'm vice chair of the scientific advisory board for the TLC Foundation for BFRBs, which is bfrb.org. It's international. The hub of information, of therapists, of resources. It's an amazing organization focused on community support and help for people with BFRBs. And they have traditionally, and then COVID happened, like many things, had a yearly conference, which is going to happen in 2023. We don't know exactly what month, but it allows families to be together at a conference and meet other people that engage in these other parents that are struggling, mm-hmm. other siblings that don't know, other, you know, and other adults people, I don't want to call them sufferers anymore, adult people with BFRBs, other adolescents, other children, and to relate to them mm-hmm. and to realize these are lovely, high functioning, creative, intelligent human beings who came from good families.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, this is this is not what I thought it was. Cause I think there's this secret belief that there's Something really, really wrong with me, mm-hmm. or I, you know, like this is some mark on my character or some horrible thing. When really, it's just, it's just, it's a thing. It's a you
0: thing. Know? It doesn't have to define you. Like
1: it can be a, you know, I have freckles, i have VFRB, I have What? Yeah. Okay. Right. But to talk about it openly, a lot of times people will take off their wigs or they won't, you know, wear their coverings. It's not required. Many people leave them on. Doesn't matter. But to be in a group of like-minded people who get you, understand you and are there to support you is incredibly powerful. So I highly recommend that for families or or anybody struggling with these disorders. It's it's a huge community that is very welcoming.
0: I think that is really so great and I echo the TLC Foundation is such a great resource. And I was looking this morning, I saw that right now, it looks like through the end of January in 2023, the BFRB community is doing a needs assessment and an impact survey, which if you are a part of this community yourself or you see it for your child, this is a great opportunity to provide some feedback. And I love the engagement with the community to be able to say, hey, my voice matters. And I can contribute to some of what's going on here so that I can feel better understood. And so that's also a really great opportunity. It looks like it opened maybe a few weeks ago at this point, and it's going to be open through the end of January. So if you, we've talked about research here on the podcast and the importance of that. And so that's an opportunity to echo your voice and your experience, but also you can find great connections, great experiences. I think it has a provider finder on TLC. Yeah. Yeah. yep. Yep. So you can do, you can, you can learn more about health education. You can learn more about the community opportunities. And, and Suzanne, you were speaking to just the dynamic, really just powerful piece of being able to join with other people that know exactly, exactly what your journey has been like, and and you don't have to feel alone, and you don't have to feel like something's wrong with you. You can celebrate who you are, and you can connect with other people and celebrate and cheer them on as well. And so I love that there's a big emphasis on clinical training, and I believe it's the TLC Foundation also has an online course. I think if you're a therapist that has clients with BFRBs and you're like, I've gone to maybe uh, a workshop at the OCD conference before, I've learned a little bit, but I, I'm definitely a fish out of water. That is a great opportunity to to learn more about BFRBs. And we can always use more equipped, understanding, practicing practitioners that can help champion on these families to, you know, living their life and getting to look forward to the soccer games, not to the scab healing, you know, and, and can celebrate everything in between as well. So I think the TLC Foundation is, it's my go-to resource for BFRBs. And so that's a really great point too about the conferences. Do you know, I know that it's not necessarily scheduled yet, but do you know, will there be a virtual component to that, do you think? Or do they usually just do the in-person?
1: Well, traditionally, it was always in person. And then during COVID, we added the virtual, it was only virtual. And there will probably be a hybrid sort of option, you know, so you can, I know that there will be, there will be in person, plus there will be some sort of, you know, online for people who can't afford to travel, who live on the other side of the world, you know, there's a lot of barriers and we try to always hold it in a place where it can be, you know, not a huge amount of money. And we try to make it accessible and give scholarships for people when they need it. But we really want to be the resource for people all around the world for BFRBs. And thank you so much for bringing up the Community Health Needs Assessment Survey. We're so super excited. It literally takes five minutes to fill out. And it asks about every single, five to 10 minutes, I should say, (laughs) every aspect of of having a BFRB or being a family member of someone with a BFRB, and we're trying to get 20,000 respondents. We may extend it past January. It may go. It may actually never close. We may just keep adding and adding but in real time. And so, so that remains to be seen, but we're trying to really understand the impact of these behaviors on people so that we can then go to Congress and ask for congressional money and say, you know, we need we need to be taken seriously because these are real disorders and they really have an impact on people's lives. Mm-hmm. And with money to really understand the best avenues of treatment and brain mechanisms and neurobiology and, and everything that other disorders have figured out or are on the way to figuring out.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. And And so you might go, well, this is a policy issue that isn't going to be able to change unless the policy changes. Well, yeah, but you can be part of that policy change. You can, your voice matters. And not only are you not alone, but that voice can open the door for other people. And in a very easy, tangible way of five to 10 minutes, I realize time is kind of an elusive thing, especially for parents. Sometimes we're like, but you could even, you know, while we're talking, you could pull up the survey and, and easily just fill it out. And your impact, your experience matters. It does. And so having that opportunity is also really cool. But then if you go and fill it out, you can see all the other amazing resources that are available and even find a provider that might be in your area or at least does telehealth in your state. Is, it, is Do you know, is the provider search available
1: outside of the U.S.? I, have to, I haven't looked at the search lately. We just launched a new website end of September, beginning of October. And so I haven't played around with the therapist referral portal, but you also mentioned the training, the virtual professional training Institute, which has been around for many years and is amazing. We are getting ready to hopefully redo it in the next five years and update it because I think I'm in it at some point and you can tell clearly it was a long time ago. (laughs) It's all changed a little bit. And so, but, but there is good training available. If providers out there or you have a therapist that you like but would like for them to get some training, it's very affordable. We will get back to in-person training in the next year, which we're excited about as well.
0: Yeah. And, you know, something that I found. So I, I joined TikTok with OCD Family Podcast. I've never been on TikTok before, and it probably shows a big way. But I've found quite a community on TikTok educating and just being very transparent about their BFRB journeys. And I think that can be helpful, too. Sometimes social media, you got to take some of it with a grain of salt. But in terms of being able to go, I feel alone in this. And this person just, oh, my gosh, I literally just did that thing yesterday and I was feeling so bad about it. But now I can see, like, I'm not the only person that has experienced that. And again, increasing that awareness piece, connecting the dots of like, you know what? People do this. Now we have these influencers that are, you know, making a big impact because they were able to go, yep, I do that. And it's, it's an empowering thing to be able to reframe that BFRB from this, I've got to hide it. I'm the only one. I must be a freak to, no, like, this is well, life.
1: If, yeah. It's amazing when I mean, people talk about erectile dysfunction and hemorrhoids and IBS all the time, but nobody talks about BFRBs and we need to make it a national conversation. It needs to be, oh yeah, I pull my hair out. or Oh, I picked my skin. You know, it needs to be relatable. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it takes the stigma away. It takes the shame away. It helps people realize this is, the, they're treatable. There's good treatment out there. and um And this is not uncommon, actually probably way more common than OCD, certainly more than Tourette. And you hear about tic disorders and Tourette, everybody knows what that is. Everybody knows what OCD is. A lot of people don't know what BFRBs are. So we're trying to change that.
0: Yeah, and I think I saw, maybe it was on the TLC Foundation, a number that I was like, that's got to be underreported. It was like two out of 50 people or something was this was the stat. And I cannot recall where I spotted that. But and it may be an out just an out, hopefully an outdated stat. But I was going that I mean, like in my house alone, I've got like four BFRB and some in, in ranging kind of severities, whatnot. I have many, many clients that come in and don't even realize that's a thing at all. And, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I skin pick. I get really bad with my nails sometimes, like I, I can't take off my socks or I'll just go to town on my feet and I don't even think about it. Right. And well, and I
1: yeah, there's a difference between subclinical right. and clinical. And what you're describing, I think it is a much larger number, maybe even up to 15, 20 percent of people have engaged in non-clinical hair pulling, skin picking kinds of things. I don't think there's a single human on this earth that can say they've never pulled a hair out or, or picked some. And I always I say in therapy, if I had a big old white at the end of my nose, it's, it's going to be dealt <laughs> with. But, I mean, and some things for the sake of hygiene, but that is not a BFRB. You know, BFRBs are when you cross over into I'm spending so much time or the outcomes are interfering in my life to the point where it's causing a problem. We're trying to figure out with this survey and we know, we know, but we need it established with data, what the outcomes are. We need everybody to have a voice and to speak up and say, yes, it does this and this. I spent this much money and my education and whatever it is that impacted. And we assess all of that in the survey. And then there's also a place where you can add your own impact if there's more that we didn't ask, because we really want to know because when we know and we have the data to support that, then we can go for the big money to really put this on the map.
0: Yeah. And I, I think, you know, you make a great point because I think sometimes parents go, okay, at what point is this normalized subclinical? And at what point does this go into kind of the clinical, I should find a therapist, whatnot. And I think, you know, as for anything, when we're OCD, anything, we can evidence different behaviors. But when it starts to Get to the point where it interferes with functioning. I'm late to work. I could lose my job if, I, if I'm late one more time. But there's a urge of, you know, a ritual maybe of being in the car or being in front of the mirror. Is it causing a lot of distress? You mentioned sometimes parents will say the kid is lying to me and they're hiding from me. Okay, so this is causing some distress because they feel like I can't, I can't do this. I'm not good enough if I'm doing this. That's a great time to go, hmm, that might be impacting their functioning, whether it's home or socially. Are they a great basketball player, but they can't try out for the team because they feel like I can't wear shorts and my legs are, you know, just covered with different spots and scabs. Then it's interfering with your ability to live to your values, to engage in your life. And that's a great time to go, yeah, I think maybe I should look into this. Maybe we need a therapist involved. You know, and and some people will have episodes where they have flare-ups and they can really go in and they can go a while without having a big significant flare-up. And so there might even be times, I I don't, mental health kind of gets this interesting rap where it's like, if you do go into therapy and then you should be able to finish it and be done. But, you know, we go to our general practitioners, like, I got a flu here. (laughs) I need to test for COVID. I need to do whatever. I need to go back. When this thing happens, you know, you therapy can be very similar. You can say, Okay, we're to a point where it's really distressing in the sense of how it's impacting my overall functioning. It still has its gains. I don't want to never pick again. But at the same time, it's really distressing right now. And then there's gonna be periods where you might go, you know what? I think I have a really good handle on this and I feel empowered and I I feel like, you know, I'm I can I can fly my own plane here. And so that
1: can ebb and flow. There's no wrong answer. Well, it's like any behavior. You just described my, my diet. <laughs> That's great for a while. It's like, I don't know what happened. You know, things are off. The, the wheels have come off and yeah. then I have to back on again. You know, and it's just, we're human, right? This is life and behavior change, change is complicated. In some ways we know what to do, what works. And we do, you know, we have research to support it. We do evidence-based treatment. But we also know it's complicated. It's complicated by environmental factors, time of year. It's the holidays. It's summer vacation. It's start of school, finals, applying to college, going to college. You know, everything is constantly changing in a person's life. And there are some predictable times when we know BFRBs may get harder. And there are predictable times where we know they might get easier. And those things also differ person to person. Right. And so it's, again, I can't emphasize enough. If you go to a therapist or you take your child to a therapist, make sure that they are not doing just a cookbook approach. This is doing the same thing with every person, because each person with a BFRB is different. And the therapist needs to go in and learn about your child and their specific habits or it's not, I mean, they they can just teach them some skills, which is great. Some may apply, some may not apply. But the treatment of choice is really tailored to the individual and what we find clinically is most helpful.
0: Yeah. We do this in OCD, we do this in a lot of different things. And we wanna look at, you know, we wanna analyze what is the functional behavior of when they're engaging in this activity or not. And that is just going to fluctuate wildly amongst people and even within the person. I I love too that you speak to the environmental factors. There are so many environmental factors. Obviously, we are still kind of floating out of our COVID period. We have multiple, you don't have to just be in the US. There's multiple political situations. There's war, there's all sorts of different contributing environmental factors that are going to impact us. They impact physical health. They impact mental health. And so really just going, well, that's okay. It, just, it feels like I need to hide this, but I don't, I don't need to. I I can contribute and I'm not a freak. I'm not all these things that maybe I could worry that I am. You're good enough just as you are and you're not alone. And so there is there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of help available even when... Things get really rough, especially when things get really rough.
1: And, and it could be the environmental factor of my grandma passed away or my dog or my boyfriend broke up with me or my girlfriend moved away. I mean, it doesn't even have to be a world war. It could right? be school ended. I had finals and then we went into summer, which is fun and I love it. But there's a lot of downtime and I'm watching a lot of TV and I have some more sensory input. That alone, you know, can can be a hard time for people or sometimes summertime is really easy for people. And so, again, it goes back to really investigating and understanding all of these things for an individual and then coming up with the best treatment plan as a result.
0: Yeah, yeah. Great point. And it's, you know, summertime, if you're really busy through summer. You know, it, I find people that are very busy when they have downtime. This is where we're going to see it manifest more. But you think about like also if you're out in the sun and and you start to peel and you start to maybe pick naturally because you've just always picked peeling skin and then now it can become this this big thing. So there's there's so many different elements of it and just having kind of a game plan and going, this is where I suspect it'll pop up more for me. It may not. And sometimes it'll surprise me. And again, the goal isn't to never, ever pick again. The goal is to feel empowered that We can choose something else if we want. Sometimes we're going to pick and we're going to say, yep, that's that's the hill I chose to climb on that. But we can still live our life. And it becomes not about I'm picking and I have to hide this. It becomes about I want to, you know, go to college. I want to have a family and I can't wait to meet my baby or whatever. You know, it can be so many different things. And so it's it's very freeing to be able to say this doesn't define me. It's part of me. And it's just like any other part of me. I might trim my hair every so often because split ends will make it harder. I might watch what I eat sometimes and exercise. Other times I might not. I might pick and I might not. Being able to get to that place is really, really freeing and just powerful to know that that we're not alone in it. Also, Suzanne's book, The Hair Pulling Book, would be an excellent resource. And again, the TLC Foundation, I would always point to that. IOCDF also has some resources, but again, I think, you know, if we're really zooming in, and it's not that IOCDF doesn't have great support for OCD-related disorders, but Really zooming in, I I would highly recommend bfrb.org. So I will also be linking that on this episode's podcast post. And yeah, we will, you know, continue to learn together. So thank you so much, Suzanne, for taking the time and for sharing with the community all of this just education and help in understanding. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, that's For our intrusive thought segment, which is the application segment of our show for the new fam in town, I just want to invite everyone back next week. We're going to be talking about another important OCD-related disorder, in body Dysmorphic Disorder, or BDD, and that will be with IOCDF Lead Advocate, Chris Tronson, and his lovely mother, Liz Tronson. Also, I wanted to highlight some of the resources available at the TLC Foundation for BFRBs at bfrb.org. So there's a lot of really helpful resources over here, but one that caught my eye and I think could be helpful for our community, whether we have some BFRB warriors in our midst or not, is what should I say and what should I not say to my child? And while I still think BFRBs and OCD are pretty different, I think these also be helpful for OCD sufferers as well. So what should I say to my child if you want to support them and they are struggling with a BFRB? Well, you can say, I love you. You are beautiful. You can say, you are important.
1: You are worthy. And your BFRB does not define you.
0: Things that we don't want to say, things that are not going to help the situation. Stop pulling, picking, biting. You look like you've been pulling, picking, biting a lot. Hey, cover that spot. And please do not tell other people about your child's BFRB without their permission. And this one, this one can be hard. It can happen before you think about it sometimes, but really try to become aware so that you're not scolding, shaming, or punishing your child for their BFRB. Your child's BFRB is not something that they can control, and it's not their fault, and it's not your fault, and it's not self-harm. Also, BFRBs are not caused by trauma. Can they co-occur with trauma? Sure, but it is not a causal relationship. This is not their fault. It's not your fault. So remember, you can check that out at bfrb.org and we can get back to focusing on the soccer games and the math tests and the memory making moments. We can be a family. And that sounds pretty great to me. The conversations start here and around your family table and at bfrb.org and at conferences where we can hug and love and cheer each other on. It starts with the community health needs assessment, and us, and all of us, using our voice, our voice, because we're better together, family. We're better together. And so, as we leave today, I'll remind you, my OCD family, you are beautiful. You are important. You are worthy your BFRB or OCD, it doesn't define you. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit OCDFamilyPodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family, like BFRBs being a tease. That's right, I went there, and you can too, at OCDFamilyPodcast.com.